On the Empire Podcast this week, we have another one of our occasional hat-tricks of awesome interviewees, Anna Faris, James Marsden, and the legendary Robert DeFal, all dropped by the pod booth or portable pod booth. And there's the usual mix of movie news and nonsense for your listening pleasure as well. All that and more on the only movie podcast that has announced this slate all the way through 2026. You won't believe who we've got on the show in August 2023. It's the guy who plays the new, new, new Green Lantern, Maddox Pitt. Jolie. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Just two colleagues of such lethal cunning this week, but what colleagues there are. First off, there's our online editor, James Dyer, who's just had laser surgery on his eyes, but disappointingly hasn't yet been able to fire optic blasts like Cyclops off off the X-Men. Disappointing, isn't it? It Jimbo. is, but where I'm going, I don't need eyes to see. Yes, we won't need eyes to see. Yes, but I'm singular. But you are in so many ways. <laughs> that is very, very true indeed. Next up, it's our geek queen, Helen O'Hara, who's never had surgery to look like any of the X-Men, to my knowledge, but who has come today in Moira McTaggart cosplay. This is very interesting. <laughs> Hello. Hello. I actually do have metal in my bones uh, in a Wolverine tribute. Not a, not a euphemism not for anything euphemism. rude, Chris, okay, well, just before you start going. Keep this it clean, is, this is your cybernetic elbow. This is my cybernetic elbow, yes. What cybernetic Rich? elbow? She has an I adamantium have, plate. I have adamantium elbow. elbows. No, well, elbow. Adamantium doesn't exist. It's unobtainium. But I'm, I'm still trying to make the, the claws pop. I'm having real trouble getting okay. those to, to work. Whoa! It was yeah, a genuine it pop. It actually go snicked. <laughs> Be careful with those. Why do you have a cybernetic elbow? Um, I broke my elbow and that's how they, they put oh, it back together. Oh, is this when you broke your elbow a few years ago? Yeah. And then they put something in it? Yeah. Was it a heroic confrontation with a supervillain? Yeah. Did they wipe your memory? Yeah. Did you, in fact, fall over? Well, that's what they replaced my memory with. See, now all I remember is falling over crossing a road in a really limp fashion. But now, but I'm pretty sure it was actually a fight with a supervillain. It's not oh. the stuff they really give Purple Hearts out for. Well, no, not yet. But I'm pretty sure I've probably got one of those secret ones that's like mm. on the wall at Langley in the CIA building. That's the best retconning of Wolverine's origin yet. <laughs> it's, not, it's nothing to do with Weapon X or secret programs. No, he just fell over in some wet leaves. <laughs> and they had to... <laughs> find some metal in his bones alright you have been sending in some questions this week via Twitter Facebook and email we have a Facebook question this is from Andrew Thorne who asks I have a question for the podcast good we've established that who do they think are the worst parents in film history Andrew says I've decided that the parents of Poltergeist they're more dangerous than the actual ghosts because the creepy clown toy in the kids bedroom the alien poster on the wall what parent puts an 18 rated film on their kids wall cool awesome parents obviously they keep a dangerous dead tree in the back garden yes it's true there's a big hole in the back garden with no fence full of water that's also true they don't leave the house immediately after getting Caroline back yes uh, they smoke weed in bed ooh don't do drugs kids and they use their daughter as a shuffleboard when they discover the house is haunted it's all true is case closed or do we have worse movie parents than this well I, I'm going to say Anakin Skywalker is probably <laughs> worse because he cuts off his son's hand he sticks his daughter in prison and tortures her and then he lets his kids carry on in a weird sort of flirty incestuous he's got a very laissez-faire parenting he style. does <laughs> like yes. he just he's lets them run around for the first 20 years more hands off than is traditional I don't know about this I was trying to think of this and I just kept coming, coming back to that piece we wrote recently on good parents in movie history which is very distracting there are lots of terrible ones I mean any horror movie basically where they don't move out of the house as soon as something goes bump in the night you've, mm. you've got to be suspicious and especially in the ones like you know the Amityville horror or something where isn't it the father becomes kind of possessed mm-hmm. and mum doesn't go you know what kids we're going to Disneyland mm-hmm. which would be the appropriate response I think but uh I don't know the, the other option that comes to mind and it's, it's a pretty wrong one but the grifters yes 
because it's a little bit incestuousy. It is a little bit incestuousy, and the end of that movie always sticks my head. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's not how you should parent your no, children. No, I think. Well, we won't give away. It kind of rules sports. out. I think you can rule out the whole horror genre for this because you know you start with Bill Paxton and frailty, and it all goes downhill from there. Well, yeah. I mean, um, uh, you know, one of my favorite films, The Omen. Gregory Peck, fine, upstanding U.S. ambassador who is complicit in covering up the the, the death, natural death. Well, or is out, it turns out to be unnatural death of his son and lies to his wife basically. For well, to be she fair, never, she never finds out. She never knows. She always suspects Damien isn't her kid, but she never mm. actually finds out. Surely the father in that film is really Satan, and he's actually quite good. He looks after his son, fosters a support group around him, you know, sees him, you know, grow up to be a nice little antichrist. So, so the best movie parent <laughs> is Satan. Satan. Lex and Tim's parents from Jurassic Park. Here, kids, <laughs> go off with creepy Uncle John and play with his dinosaurs. Yeah. Granddad. Granddad. Granddad John. Granddad John. Yeah, Granddad, granddad John. Sorry, yeah. Granddad. See, well, he looked so young. <laughs> Who <laughs> thought it? I come to my park. Send the children to my park. Nothing will go wrong. That's a Scottish accent. That was amazing. Mrs. Bates in uh, Psycho. Not such a great parent. Yeah, but, you know, she's been more fleshed out from Bates Motel, but in the, mm-hmm. you know, she, she could be a perfectly good parent for all we know in the in the movie. And then Norman is just the one who went a bit doolally and So you're saying bit, she a was a killing. perfectly reasonable woman. Yeah. And just happened to give birth to a guy who, despite her very best efforts, turned mm. out to be that. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Suck on it, Freud. Absolutely. Should we? Uh, should we move on? Because we could be here all day with this one. But uh, hope they were sufficiently good. Andrew Thorne. All right. Next question is <laughs> this is an interesting one from Liam Gannon via email. He says, which is the best movie car theft? This is a very specific question. For me, it would have to be in Terminator 2 when the Terminator learns to find the keys to the vehicle. So when he falls and he finds out that they're actually in the little Pfizer thing above the... Yeah, it's I'm, a technical I'm, term. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I must admit, not wildly sold on that particular car theft. Mm. Why not? Because it's, you know... You prefer your car theft to be... I prefer that to be a body count. Um, <laughs> I think the, the best theft in that film is the helicopter theft with the, you know, the get out, which is, of course, a reference back to Terminator, which is, mm-hmm. in fact, a much better truck theft, which is the get out in that as well, mm. which I think works very well. But in terms of car theft, my, I have a real softness for um, Sean Connery and The Rock. I'm only borrowing your Humvee. In a similar ridiculous style, Gone in 60 Seconds has quite a few good car thefts, in fairness. I obviously it will surprise no one to say have to have to mention Fast and Furious 5 stealing the cars out of the train mm-hmm. if you remember it that's uh, that's pretty stylishly done um, in terms of ordering people out of cars I have a soft spot for Speed where he takes over that really nice green sports car and gets going after the G-Man. bus yeah and, and in terms of thefts that are only marginally thefts how about Ferris Bueller's Day Off because if you're going to steal a car steal a really good car you know it's borrowing at best. Yeah, it's kind of borrowing. Yeah, I, I like uh, yeah, I like when people really get down to nitty gritty and start hot wiring cars, you know, because it makes you think that you could do it in right. real life. But of course, you you, you can't because we we would all be useless and arrested or or dead. I do feel but, like we should make clear. I mean, in the last few weeks, we've been asked to to advise people on punching individuals, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so on, and now we're being asked to condone car theft. Okay, I think we no, should make no. it clear that gentle car theft, let the golden child. When he touches it and starts the car with his little magic finger. Oh, that was cute. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, but, you know, like the Terminator's got a good one. When uh, they're in the, the car park and Kyle Reese is trying to start the car with by touching the two wires together, uh, which, as we all know, is what you do. And uh, 
and you know the Terminator's on them. You know, it's like, and he can hear the the sound of the car, and it's all very tense. And that's that's a good moment. I like stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, stealing cars is a crime. Do Don't not accept, accept it. it. Do not accept you it. You wouldn't download a car. <laughs> no, wait. You wouldn't steal a policeman's helmet and then go to the toilet in this helmet. <laughs> uh, right, okay. So uh, only two questions this week because we've got a lot to get through and we've got three interviews. But uh, thanks for your questions. Do send more to us. Send more cops. Send more questions to us. To Twitter. To Send it to Twitter. <laughs> What's Twitter's email address? We're on Twitter at, at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. That's alt three. And Empire Podcast. You can also email us podcast at empireonline.com or you can Facebook us. Empire Magazine is where we are, funnily enough. Okay, time now for our first guest. The Cyclops mention earlier wasn't an accident, although it kind of was because I wrote that before I remembered that James Morrison was on the podcast. See, we have a big whiteboard in the office with the names of all the upcoming guests, but I wrote this at home, so I'd forgotten that he was on the podcast. Anyways, it was a complete, complete fluke, actually. That's quite uh, the anecdote. It is. It is a good anecdote. But, I, I, you know, people now know there's a whiteboard with all the names of the guests in. So. Spoiler. I know. It's interesting. Uh, Cyclops is in this podcast. Hooray! James Morrison uh, played the leader of the X-Men in three movies, of course. He got bumped off unceremoniously. Spoiler alert. Hashtag justice for Cyclops. Since X-Men, of course, he's revealed a serious funny bone in the likes of Anchorman 2 and 30 Rock. But this week he pops up as the lead in the not funny at all, the best of me. Or is that not... It's not unfair. Okay. Uh, the latest Nicholas Sparks adaptation, Helen went along to speak to him and we were all like, hey, Helen, are you sure you don't need someone to go with you? Because, you know, you probably should have backup in this. And she goes, no, 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 it's fine. I've got this, guys. And we were like... Why do you have duct tape and, like, rope? And she was like, no reason. And now no one knows where James Marston is, which is, I'm sure, a total coincidence. I'm pretty sure he's fine. He's probably fine. (laughs) Have you fed him today? Is he okay? Before his unexpected disappearance, (laughs) we conducted this interview. We did. So please enjoy it. So this is obviously a big swoony romance, I think it's fair to say. Wouldn't you? Yeah, a big swoony romance. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Moderately swoony. Yeah, moderate moderate plus swoony. Um, Yeah, I'd agree with you on that, yeah. Nicholas Sparks has become a one-man genre, really, at this point, I think. I I did The Notebook about 10 to 12 years ago or something, so that was my first foray into his world. Um, And it was a a great experience, and I don't think any of us thought that it would have the life that it has, you know, still to this day. It's become like a cult favourite, which is... You know, you you want all your movies to have that sort of effect, but um, so now to come back and uh, and be in another one of his films uh, is, is cool. It's pretty special, and and um, um, yeah, I feel like I've I've um, I'm a veteran now. <laughs> I'm a Sparks veteran. It seems to me, having having watched practically all of his films, I don't think I've seen Knights in Rod- Rodan. How I pronounce that one? But I would be tempted if I were given a Nicholas Sparks script to skip to the end and see who dies. Make sure it wasn't me. Um, I don't know if you're... I think that's you know. fair. <laughs> <laughs> He's certainly got the formula down, doesn't he? Um, but uh, yeah, that said, we, we, we know how how it goes with the with the, the Sparks novels. Yeah, I, I'm not that familiar. I mean, I haven't. you said you've seen most of them other than Knights and Rodan. I haven't seen that many, actually. <laughs> I'm a bad, um, bad student. There's something that really appeals to a specific audience with these types of films, and it's, um, it's, it's really a, um, I don't know, I think it's a nice departure from a lot of other films you see in the, in the, in the theaters these days, which are uh, you know, big special effects, blockbusters, superhero movies, and, you know, nothing wrong with them, some of which I was a part of, but, um, or like a- animated kids' films and very, a lot fewer you know, ad- adult movies with um, you know, sort of human themes and relationships and emotion and all that stuff <laughs> joined into one. So, um, 
So I don't know. For me, it was like it was a good opportunity to. Uh, it was I liked the script, I liked the character, and and um, um, it was cool working with Michelle, who I think um, just really surprised me and knocked it out of the park with True Detective. And yeah, it's just I guess it's just uh, it's just an unabashed, you know, unapologetic love story, and and maybe that might make the guys roll their eyes a bit, but uh, the ladies <laughs> are fond of them, so hopefully they they think the same of this one. I've got a couple of questions coming out of that. Though. I'm going to come back to the superhero uh, question in a minute. But what kind of things do you watch? Are you one of these actors who is so busy working, you don't actually go to the cinema a lot to see a lot of movies? Or do you kind of try and keep up on top of it? No, I don't see nearly as many films as I need to see. Um, when I'm not working, I'm usually at home with my kids. But uh, occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll see something that... Uh, you know, I'm so I'm at least four or five years behind. So I just <laughs> saw the first episode of Sopranos the other day. But yeah, I try to I try to see as many films as I can. I, on the flight over, I watched Inglorious Bastards. That's how far behind I am. And I was like, this is an amazing film. Someone should, tell, someone should tell people about this film. Who is this director? He's pretty special. But I guess juggling work and and being a father, you know, it's it it is time consuming. But uh, yeah, I, I got I have some catch up work to do. But it's also one of those things that if you do it for a living, it's like sometimes the last thing you want to do when you go home and take off your work clothes is to jump back into that that industry. Yeah. But uh, but that said, uh, you know, I, I am a film lover. And I, I just uh, it does it does take time. And when you got three kids, it's uh, it's harder to find the time to see all the films you need to be seeing. You're probably watching Frozen on repeat. Yes, I am. Yeah, I could, I could, let's recite it right now. I could tell you the whole damn thing. Um, so tell me then about working with Michelle. <clears throat> I mean, did you have a lot of time, because you came into this, I think, quite late. So did you have a lot of time to kind of rehearse together and, and, and indeed with your younger selves, as kind of share the role and, and work out mannerisms or anything like that? Together? Yeah, my younger self, who's maybe like a whopping 11 years younger than me. We did get to sit down and have some rehearsal time. Uh, Michael, the director, Michael Hoffman's a, um, a big uh, advocate of, you know, rehearsing. Some actors are not into rehearsing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of like, whichever, whichever way you want to go, if, uh, if the director uh, wants to rehearse, then I'm cool with it. If not, then that's fine. But... Um, with this one, it was nice to get together and get at least on the same page as Luke, who plays uh, the younger Dawson, and uh, make sure that we're not, you know, doing two completely different accents. And um, so that was that was helpful. And and more than that, it was just nice to sit down and read read the scenes with Michelle and kind of get an idea of what she was going to do and um, <clears throat> get the scenes up on their feet a little bit. And and so that it's, so you don't show up on set and it's all. You know, you, you, when when the precious time and the clock is ticking, you know, you're not presenting the director with all these questions and problems. And um, but yeah, and Michelle was I, I didn't know Michelle up until this movie, but she was always one of those actresses I I uh, thought highly of, and and w was hoping to work with at some point, and thought I, I think we'll probably work together at some point. And it's roughly the same age. She's a good deal younger than me, but. Um, I don't know. It's just sometimes you feel like I, I'm sure I'll work with that act, yeah. that actor, some at some point. So it was nice to actually have that uh, materialize. Yeah. It's it's interesting as well seeing you play. Now this may be completely my perception, and I may have it completely wrong, but it seems to me you kind of sometimes undermine your looks by playing someone completely <laughs> self-absorbed and crazy. I'm thinking yeah. of like Anchorman and Hairspray and things yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually very rare for you to play the sort of romantic lead. Yeah, it's much more uncomfortable for me to do that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's true. I do feel more comfortable playing the the sort of misguided, playing the characters that think they're the, the hot. Shit, and yeah. which and turns out they they think they are, but they're they're far from it. I think it's just a more interesting yeah. thing, especially in comedy. But I guess too, it's like I just never taken myself that seriously in, in a healthy way, not in yeah. a, you know. So I, I 
I'm always drawn to the characters that are, like I said, you know, maybe have in, in comedies just a little bit of buffoon to them. <laughs> it's, 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 it's fun. The misguided characters who think they're the greatest and are, are far from it. It's fun to see them sort of fall on their face. But I don't know. I guess I've always been uh, attracted more towards the, the character roles. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't necessarily. Um, think of myself as the, the quintessential leading man. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> why should I ask that of my audience? <laughs> you would have more fun, you know, like on Anchorman or something. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I get to make fun of myself. As I'm much more comfortable doing that. Um, how, how was that, by the way? Because that looked like a, an insane, crazy... Yeah, it's, it's exactly as you might imagine, which is... Um, you know, no structure whatsoever. <laughs> it's just, it was a bunch of funny people getting together, and it was. It, I I've likened it to. It's it's like you're getting together with a bunch of your goofy friends with with a camcorder and making a movie over the weekend. It's like that's that's what it sort of felt like. Like mm-hmm. oh well, this this is a funny idea. Let's try this and like oh that'll be funny. Make that face and we'll do that and you know. So there is a script and it was a nice script and but we would stray from that frequently and. Um, and you just kind of have to be open to flow with whatever crazy thing Will comes up with to do. And and the hardest part of that job was not laughing, was, you know, because you realize I'm going to screw this take up if I laugh and they won't be able to use it. Mm-hmm. So it's just sort of, <laughs> I'm laughing now just thinking about it. I did have a take, I would, um, I would, uh, I would pinch my thigh. I would like, and every every day, like painfully. Um, so every day I would go home and have like a bruise on my right leg, uh, just because you realize if you, you screw this up, they can't use it. So that was one of the that was one of the techniques. Uh, sadly, it's just like morbid stuff. I would think about f- people that I love dying. You know, like it's all, I mean, you have to really go to dark places to. Say, to keep yourself from laughing. Yeah, it's really it was really difficult. Um, but also it was interesting, too, to see, you know, I've not done that much improv in my career, but I've always loved improv. And to me, when I'm not thinking about the words or the dialogue, you know, I'm better. Uh, if you just sort of forget the script and sort of, you're actually listening to the, the other actor. And But I watched Steve and, and Will and saw how generous they were with one another. It wasn't just funny comedians competing with one another to tell the funniest joke. It was like Will would actually set Steve up for something, you know, and they can read each other's minds and know where they're going for their joke and then they would help each other out, like set set themselves up for, for jokes. So it was it was interesting learning experience there. Yeah. A lot of, you know, a lot of chest pounding and posturing. <laughs> but but it was like me Versus, you know, Will, Steve, Paul, and David Koechner. So it was, it was, it was a little intimidating at first, but, uh, but I played such a, you know, such an arrogant prick. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, <clears throat> it was fun to go up against them. And they were, they were so, you know, they're guys that, uh, a lot of times comedians can be dark people. They can be um, um, very selfish sometimes too. And these guys are just the opposite of that. They, they want everyone in the room to be as funny as they are. And, and, uh, it's, it was a nice environment to work in. Yeah. Are you aware? Actually, there's been a, a there's a, a comics book writer on Twitter called Gail Simone who makes fun of Cyclops pretty much twenty four seven. No, and really. So he's the most boring character in comics. Uh, Do you feel this is unfair. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I've heard that before. Like he's, you know, uh, when I first got the role, I I didn't know much about the the comics or the character, and um, I I called a friend of mine who was a big X Men fan growing up with, and he was trying to he was basically telling me about he was the first person i called basically because i knew he was such a fan and he and he was saying yeah he was cyclops you know he's yeah he's 
he's he's a bit of a boy scout you know he's 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 a little stiff and you know kind of like the you know he's the he's the leader but he's you know it's he's cool but he's not as cool as Wolverine you know yeah. um so I'm like oh, okay well that's so that's the general feel of him but then you get fans that are like you know he's uh he, you know like it's again he's been shafted and he's the leader and he should be given his due um <laughs> I was a bit of I was Wolverine's whipping boy for a, a good a good part of that first film, especially. Um, but that was part of the fun was like, kind of the, the banter back and forth with him. And I've got to ask about a couple of things you've got coming up next. Westworld is that a thing that you're doing? Yeah, I just did a um, the pilot for HBO. Um, so it's sort of still we don't know if it's going to series yet or not. But um, Jonah Nolan, who's Christopher Nolan's brother wrote and directed the, the pilot with uh, Anthony Hopkins and Ed Harris, Evan Rachel Wood, Tanny Newton, Jeffrey Wright, great cast. He's basically updating the concept that Michael Crichton you know, uh, created in, in the 70s when he made the film, which is essentially in the, in the future there's a theme park where uh, adults can pay a lot of money to go and be transported back into the Wild West, and, and it's inhabited by AI. Mm. And uh, you can go and get in gunfights with, with people and never get shot but you can, you know, blast somebody and you can go to a brothel and, you know, sleep with um, prostitutes and not get in trouble for it. It's really oh, yeah. sort of like the moral decay of, <laughs> of our culture. But yeah, it's, it's, but Joan has taken to a whole new, interesting, darker sort of existential level and with a future AI, of AI and all of that. So it's, uh, it's a pretty special thing to be a part of. And uh, I think um, if, if we get up and running, it should be something pretty cool. Well, you, I mean, judging by the cast they've assembled, they certainly believe in the script. So fingers crossed. That's like- yeah, yeah. Well, it's also a testament to the script. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's uh, knowing how many people want to show up to be a part of it, it's pretty, pretty special. Yeah. What after that? Um, what did I just, I just did a, a comedy with Jack Black called D Train. I think they're um, unfortunately changing the title. Um, which just confuses everybody, but um, a, a pretty cool um, two-hander with him, pretty irreverent uh, comedy. It's just Jack and I, and um, it's about a guy who's uh, was not the cool guy in high school, and he's he's uh, trying to assemble everybody for the 20-year reunion, and nobody wants to go, and, and uh, he sees me, who was the cool guy in high school, on a commercial, and I'd moved to Hollywood to become an actor, and he thinks I've just made it big, so if he comes to L.A. and gets me to go to the premiere, I mean, sorry, to the... Uh, uh, to the reunion, then everyone will show up. But um, that's that's just sort of skimming the surface of it and um, what what it takes to get me back. <laughs> Have you got Luke Bracey playing your twenty years ago version again? <laughs> no, actually, no. I I was. It's funny because an interesting story about that is that I was just a, uh, to prove that I was not the coolest guy in high school. The directors asked for some photos of me. Um, from high school, just to, like because you never see the young version of me live action, but you see photos of me from high school. Uh-huh. I said, "I'll send you what I have," and uh, I, like what? And he, he said, "Just like you know, just your cool like senior photo, or like you like hanging out with the guys." And I sent them these photos, and I said, "They're not going to be great." I'm, I was not. I was not. I wasn't a nerd really, but I just was like kind of a nondescript, you know, loner. <laughs> I didn't really. It was like a drama kid, and they said, "Bah, come on!" And they sent, I sent the photos, and they were like, "This is a real problem." Because we've gotten the pictures of Jack Black, yeah. who grew up in L.A., and he looks like a young Robert De Niro or like, you know, Emil Hirsch, like yeah. a green, like, military jacket, and he looks badass, and, and he's supposed to look dorky, and it was the opposite. So we had to take some, like, early modeling photos of me and act like they were um, high school, yeah. <laughs> so from one 
guy who's been in both Marvel and DC movies. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. To the movie news, which you may not be surprised to know if you've kept your ear to the ground this week in terms of Hollywood happenings, will be dominated by discussion of Marvel and DC movies. I'm sorry about that for anyone who might, you know, find that a bit of a turnoff. Skip 10 minutes. And That's there'll optimistic. Be, there'll be discussion of some <laughs> lovely movie puppies for you. Just, you know, or meantime, listen to this lovely music. <laughs> Okay. All right. I okay. So gone, uh, they've gone now. Let's uh, discuss. The, where should we start? Should we start with Marvel? Uh, Marvel let's, Mar- let's do Marvel DC. first because I think that's a smaller, slightly smaller and more self-contained story. Ha! Right. Potentially. I know, but we okay. could talk for hours about this stuff. Okay, but you're not going to. You're, you're I'm gonna, not going to. Okay. I'm going to be restrained. Really restrained. This was the news this week that basically Robert Downey Jr. has been out doing the rounds talking about the judge and of course has been asked about the prospect of more Iron Man movies along the way. And it eventually emerged that he is in talks with Marvel to join Captain America 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an, originally a suggestion or a plan that this would be a fairly small engagement, that he would only be on set for a small amount of time. He apparently said no to that and wanted something slightly more substantial if he was going to do it. And the suggestion now is that we are looking at a sort of proto-civil war Mm. Uh, for Marvel, which of course is the comic book arc that saw the US introduce a superhero registration act so anybody with superpowers or access to alien super weapons or magical powers or anything of that nature would have to register their secret identity with the government, do government sort of mandated work and basically be sort of controlled and Mm. under some kind of, you know, Uh, government oversight. Uh, This is something that divided the Marvel Universe in the comics down the middle. Uh, You had on one hand Iron Man leading the pro-registration forces, forcing Spider-Man to reveal his secret identity to the world. Gasp! And uh, and on the other hand, you had uh, Captain America, who was initially obviously working with S.H.I.E.L.D., was asked to bring in the anti-registration heroes and decided that this was not what he does. This Mm. is not what the America that he believes in essentially jumped off a flying helicarrier and disappeared into the night to re-emerge leading the resistance to the Superhero Registration Act. So you were set with this kind of titanic confrontation between two heroes of the Marvel Universe, two, two really major, major uh, figures in it with everyone, you know, wavering in between them, essentially. And it was it was an arc which, you know, there are criticisms to be made of it as a comic book arc, but at the same time, it's an incredibly good and an incredibly strong idea. And it is one that, you know, you can see the current Marvel Cinematic Universe, Captain America, really working well with because quite frankly the Winter Soldier had a little bit of that feel to it already yeah very much so very much uh, setting up Steve Rogers as some weird kind of anti-authoritarian figure which is strange yeah called Captain who wears a flag on his chest But, but, it, uh, but it's so sort of counterintuitive that I think it actually works. I think it's mm-hmm. it's it's the same thing that you know uh, people have pointed out that the the Steve Rogers that we see on screen is is a very kind of left wing Steve Rogers. In the same way that uh, this is a very different setup, but Sleepy Hollow on TV, you have this figure from the American Revolution coming in and actually espousing very liberal ideas when he gets here yes. and going, well, actually, that's what we thought at the time and sort of rejecting a lot of what people say is, is you know, traditional American values. And I think it's the same with Steve Rogers, that what he sees as traditional American values are not necessarily what, say, George Bush Jr. sees as traditional American values. So I think it's a really interesting kind of dichotomy there between what is liberty and what is security and, and oh, I, 
as a lefty, I get really excited about it. I can, I can see it. I can see the, the vein in your forehead throbbing and your, your, your cybernetic elbow is glowing. Which is, it is, yeah. Well, that'll soften a little bit. It's, it, it was made from, from Cylon parts. It's nothing to worry about. <laughs> which is really weird. Uh, Jimbo, anything to say on this before I... I it's an interesting. I, I have, it has to be said, read every single uh, Civil War comic, including all the, the many, many times, which I think numbers well into the... 130s or something like that. It's a lot. Yeah, it's it's a weird obsessive compulsive thing. I enjoyed Civil War. I thought it was good. It, it's not. I don't think one of the best of Marvel's crossovers. I, I've, uh, I'm very partial to Inferno and, and House of M. Have you said that? I think it's probably the most famous. It yeah. is probably the most famous. I think it, well, obviously Wars. because of the way it en- the way it ends. I think is uh, is perhaps the reason for that. Spoilers. We probably shouldn't talk about that, should we? Seven years old. Can we say that? Chris has talked about it in his feature on the website. Mm, Yeah, I did. I wrote a long, (laughs) longer than initially intended feature uh, about what this could mean. Because let's let's be honest here. Marvel haven't said uh, boo about this yet. This is all uh, scuttlebutt from a very good and seemingly well-sourced variety piece talking about this could be Civil War. But beyond that, we don't really know what else. Kevin mm. Devin Fratchie over Badass Digest says he's heard that the working title of Captain America 3 is either Civil War mm-hmm. or Fallen Sun, which would seem to indicate that... Well, I don't think it necessarily indicates that Captain America will die, but I do think it means that he will further, even more than he did in, in uh, The Winter Soldier, cast off the flag and, 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 uh, and, and go on the run. Now that's interesting because Fallen Sun could be read two ways potentially mm-hmm. with those two. There was a there was a suggestion from one of the commenters actually on Badass Digest, which I thought would be genius, is that we know that the Winter Soldier Bucky has been uh, carrying out assassinations for you know fifty fifty years or more for the Russians. Mm-hmm. We also know that Hard Stark was murdered. Um, there was a suggestion. Somebody said, "Well, what if Bucky murdered Howard Stark? Wouldn't that set?" Um, Cap and Iron Man on a collision course. You'd have uh, Cap trying to protect Bucky, who morally isn't responsible, arguably, for his actions as Winter mm-hmm. Soldier. And you'd have Iron Man trying to bring him to justice because he killed his dad. Mm-hmm. Father, Fallen Son, in that case... Could be Tony Stark. Could be both, yeah. Okay, interesting. Also, uh, I think this is very interesting. There's a, there's a recalibration going on here. You know, we haven't seen Avengers Age of Ultron yet. There's a fair amount of scuttlebutt out there in the internet, again addressed in the uh, in the piece. From what I know, from what others know, when we piece together, a lot of stuff will go down in Age of Ultron that mm. will have wide-ranging ramifications on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think on Tony Stark himself, and there's going to be a slight recalibration in this movie, he's not going to be the bad guy, per se. Uh, I think the likes of Frank Grillo coming back as Crossbones will we'll see to that. But, as, uh, but there will be, I think, obviously you, you will come into it with your own political filters. You'll go into this movie, and as you did with you know Miller McNiven's uh, Civil War comic. You you read that whatever way you wanted to do. If you you know if you went in with a certain leaning, you thought Iron Man was in the right. If you or another leaning, you thought Captain America was in the right. But here, I think it's fairly clear that Captain America is in the right, and Tony Stark is going to be the de facto not a bad guy per se, but he's going to be recalibrated uh, as an antagonist. And I think that's very very interesting for someone who's carried the uh, the MCU on his back so far. Yeah, I I'm not sure. Do you, was it possible to read? I've read. I've read people. <laughs> I mean, I'm I've had discussions this week with nowhere near as, as left-leaning as Helen. I think it's fair to say, but I, I don't think at any point Stark came across as sympathetic in the Civil War. I don't it. think so. But then um, again, we're all a bunch. But of I don't. I think that the character. I mean, he's quite unlikable all the way through Civil War. And I think this is the interesting way this will play out because Robert Downey Jr. brings such a likability to that character yes. that the Stark in the comics has never really had. So it would be interesting to see how that would work. It wouldn't be anywhere near as clear cut. True, but uh, but as I said in my piece as well, Tony Stark 
for all Robert Downey Jr.'s charm, is a massive dick. So I think <laughs> it'll be interesting to have him on the other side. But, but also you'll so see conflict, won't you? You'll see you'll see him torn. The thing is, the Tony Stark of the films is so iconoclastic. You know, he's so you know tweaked the nose of authority. Mm. It's really hard to reconcile that with a kind of "thou shalt register" but mentality. Then, you know, in in the Winter Soldier already, we had him working with Shield to build those helicarriers. He isn't he isn't unpatriotic necessarily. He isn't completely unwilling to work with the government if called upon to do so. Now, obviously, we saw, on, on the other hand, there's Iron Man 2, where he was refusing to give up his Iron Man technology, which yeah. is, quite frankly, a reasonable position to take. But he's not, it's not a hard line for him, necessarily. He's not, he's not, he wasn't willing to give up the sort of the Iron Man identity, if you will, to the government, but he was willing to give them bits and pieces that would enable them to do their job better, as he saw at the time. Now, obviously, after the fallout from the Winter Soldier, the collapse of S.H.I.E.L.D. under the influence of Hydra, which is still playing out in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, does S.H.I.E.L.D. even exist anymore? Probably not. But arguably, that leaves a vacuum. And if there is, if they opened this Captain America 3, if it was Civil War, if they opened it with the sort of disaster that opened the Civil War comics, probably on a bigger scale, given that, given that the MCU tends to operate on a huge scale. If they op- opened it with a huge disaster leading to the loss of civilian lives and the government had no S.H.I.E.L.D., to, to kind of counteract that in, in the future, you can see, potentially, Tony Stark going, right, I can help. Well, I don't think they... I don't. Well, we don't know, but I don't think they'll necessarily open Captain America 3 with that. I think it'll be more Ultron. that Age of Ultron will yeah. end with that. Yeah. Uh, and what better way to invoke a total 180-degree shift in someone's personality and someone's attitude and, and political stance, if you want to go that far, than being indirectly responsible for the deaths of... of hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people. I'm just guessing yeah. here. I don't know for sure. But uh, I think that the offence of Age of Ultron will be so cataclysmic, and Tony Stark is responsible for the, the birth of Ultron, that I think it'll weigh very heavily on him. So you, you could see why he might want to turn around and go, hang on, guys, maybe we should be regulated. Uh, we don't want to go too much into spoilers on the on the podcast, or potential spoilers. Uh, do check out my, my piece on the website if you if you want to read uh, more, or you know go to Devin Fratchy and buy the Badass Digest. Man's well-informed. So uh, do check that stuff out as well, because I really think that Marvel are taking their uh, universe into very, very interesting areas. Avengers 3 is not going to be what we thought it was going to be initially. We thought I think everyone thought it was going to be nicely wrapped up with a bit of a bow that was going to be a sort of finality to it in some way that we would have Avengers 2 that would trigger off whatever Phase 3 was and then we'd finish with Avengers 3 where Thanos comes to Earth fights the Avengers the Guardians of the Galaxy shows up everyone high fives and goes home it's not going to be that simple uh, and it's going to be a lot more elaborate I think uh, and I'm very very excited about it <laughs> if you are still listening to the Empire Podcast we're about to discuss DC if you don't like this sort of stuff Skip ahead for cute movie kittens. Okay, so that's Marvel dealt with. Oh, so much more to say. Anyway. Hi. Hello. Yes, um, DC have finally put some names to their dates. Now, we knew already that they had announced a bunch of dates. They kind of bagsied a bunch of release dates between now and 2020. They have now put some figures to those names. And there are some kind of surprises, I guess. I mean, there are some non-surprises first. Obviously, Batman v Superman colon Dawn of Justice (laughs) is still there for 2016. still called that? (laughs) They don't seem to be backing down on that. It's really weird. But that is no longer alone in th- in terms of their their superhero news. They are also planning standalone films for. Well, actually, no. Let's let's start go in sort of chronological order. So after Batman v Superman, 
colon, Dawn of Justice. We're going to get The Suicide Squad, directed by David Ayer, who, of course, has just done Fury. And they don't get a colon. They don't get a colon yet. Hey, we can we can hope it will be Twilight of Justice or something. Um, so The Suicide Squad, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, which I think is most people, to be perfectly honest, is a squad of... DC's supervillains and anti-heroes who are kind of pressed into service by the government to do a lot of kind of deniable black ops basically. There is a sort of there's the kind of rolling um, membership that you see in the likes of the Sinister Six in Marvel. There are a few people who tend to always be in there. Deadshot tends to be in there. Um, A guy called Rick Flagg, usually Junior, tends to be in there. Bronze Tiger uh, who else? Uh, Captain Boomerang. Yes, I'm not kidding. Yes, he is Australian. Um, tend to be in there, but it is a slightly rolling lineup. They have appeared in one form in the Arrow TV show recently, but as we also know from news that will come up in a minute, there's no real link between that and the DC Cinematic Universe. Anyway, but that's that's coming for 2016. There were reports this morning that the names in consideration for that, or the names that Warners are chasing for that, include the very tasty likes of Ryan Gosling, Margot Robbie, Will Smith and Tom Hardy, um, which is kind of an interesting lineup. Also coming, Wonder Woman 2017, mm-hmm. a solo female lead. That's exciting in superhero terms. A Flash movie, mm-hmm. not connected to the current TV show that has just started on the CW. This would star Ezra Miller as The Flash. And the fact that they're already casting him presumably means he'll show up at the end of Dawn of Justice. Uh, an Aquaman movie, Vinnie Chase will be disappointed. Vinny Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Vinny Chase will be disappointed to have missed out to Jason Momoa, who is now confirmed. Two Justice League pictures in 2017 and 2019, and a Dwayne Johnson starring Shazam announced for 2019. Um, that's got to be slightly disconnected from the rest because Shazam is, has got to skew younger, surely. And then in 2020, for those of you still here, still listening, a Green Lantern reboot. That one isn't cast yet, but I mm-hmm. imagine that Green Lantern will turn up in at least one Justice League movie. And a cyborg movie. He is, of course, played by Ray Fisher, who is appearing in Batman v Superman, colon, Dawn of Justice. They also promise us Superman and Batman standalones somewhere in there. God knows where. So... <laughs> Did they throw all that at a wall and just see where it landed? I mean, presumably somebody has a plan. I'm, I'm sure that Zack Snyder, in fairness, has a plan because I essentially think he's he's making a trilogy here. It seems like he is, you know, he's going straight from Batman v Superman Dawn to Colon Dawn of Justice to Justice League Part One. Dawn of Colon to Justice League Part Two. So presumably, you know, he's the one. He's the only director confirmed for those three. So he's got to have some kind of overarching idea for those, right? Yes, yes. And it's not at all like they got a stack of comics and threw them in the air and saw where they landed on a big calendar they had drawn on the floor. Now, uh, to be fair to these films, I think, unfortunately, all three of us have what can only be described as a horrendous Marvel bias. This um, is not true. This is not true. I know it's true. <laughs> um, having said that, love Chris Nolan's Batman movies. Indeed. Yesterday I was wearing a T-shirt with Michael Keaton's name on it. Also true. It's Batman. That's true. I love all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, I grew up reading Marvel comics, uh, so my my leanings uh, lie that way. Yeah, I, but my, my main issue with this slate, and you know, at Empire, every day is Christmas Eve, and we're very, very excited about these movies, is that there's a great deal, and it's not just restricted to the DC slate, it's also Warner Brothers just announced three uh, movies based on J.K. Rowling's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Three movies, plus two Lego movie spin-offs before we even get a Lego movie too. 
there's a great deal of running before you can walk, mm. I think, in this Slate announcement. Um, and, you know, not to be too Marvel fanboyish about it all, they didn't do it that way. They didn't work that way. They announced Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, um, and they took it from there. And they went, okay, we would like to do Captain America and Thor movies, and we'd like to ultimately, you know, Kevin Feige was off, off, you know, open about it from the off. Yes, it's no coincidence these are the, the characters that you will see in the Avengers because that's where we're going and that's where we'd like to get to. But this is a huge gamble. And if Iron Man and Incredible Hulk had flopped, they wouldn't have got to Thor or Captain America or the Avengers. And they at least they announce things in increments and installments mm. and they make sure that things are, are going well or going to be received well before they announce sequels. There's a possibility of getting ahead of yourself by announcing a cyborg movie in 2020. Is there really going to be an appetite for a cyborg movie? At any point, Ruth? I mean, maybe there will. Maybe he'll. Maybe there will. Maybe, maybe he'll knock it out of the park. I, I will yeah. say that you know he's obviously been a, a key member of the Teen Titans, and I think we are a, ge- a generation slightly before that. But I know that like even mm. my little sister generation grew up absolutely worshiping the Teen Titan cartoons. Well, the puffy Amy Yumi theme tune is astonishingly <laughs> catchy. It's great. So you know there might there might be a little bit more of an audience than we maybe credit mm. him for. And also we haven't seen Ray Fisher in the role yet. True. He could be one of those standout characters who you're like, hell yes, I want to see more of that dude. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, fingers crossed for that. Equally, Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, you know, on principle, I want a Wonder Woman movie to rock. I I hope that this does. I really, really do, because I think that could be a really fascinating thing. Whether they go the sort of Thor route and have it on the Miscara with, you know, crazy, weird society, maybe they could do it that way. There have been some great comic book arcs set there. Whether they do it with her, you know, in the modern day and for some reason Batman and Superman are out of town or something and, you know, she does everything on her own. They could even do some kind of flashback. I mean, you know, mm. she's essentially ageless. She could have been around since World War Two. Mm-hmm. There could be a kind of a flashback movie of the of that kind of comic book origin that she originally had. So there's there's some interesting stuff to explore there. I just hope they find something that really, really works and really kicks ass. Yeah, but the, 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 you know, there's a model out there already for how to do this and how to do it well and how to do it not necessarily right how to do it well and it seems perverse to me in a way not to follow that model they kind of there seems to be an element of stumbling around into this that Man of Steel is going to be the the sort of birthing stone if you will for everything else that comes afterwards but they just seem to be there's an element of making it up as they go see I wonder if actually the problem isn't that that's exactly what they're trying to do is copy the Marvel model but instead of trying to copy it from the beginning they're trying to jump into what they're doing now so Marvel have announced their sort of sweeping plans for the next few years and they're saying oh yes we should be doing this as well and they're jumping in the deep end as you say and they're picking it up halfway instead of going back to the beginning and thinking, okay, how do we tease this stuff out? But in fairness, maybe they're trying to, you know, find a different way of doing it because, they, you know, they did that before that when they were talking about a Justice League movie back in the sort of 10 years ago now, they were talking at that time of potentially spinning those guys off singly mm. afterwards. Mm. They were talking of the Justice League being the introduction and then the spin out afterwards. So they had something like this notion floating about for a while. And you can see why as the other great big comic book major that they might say well we don't have to copy them we don't have to do it the same way they've done it we can find a different way you can see why that would be you know a feeling that they could have and also the comic books at the moment there's a real sense of kind of I think rebirth and and a growing sense of confidence at DC on the page that I think they haven't had for a little while so so maybe they've got some great new writers there that are giving them great ideas really firing them up and I don't know. I'm being an apologist, but I, I genuinely think we're, it's it's a little too early to um to be anything but. But I'm I'm hopeful for these. I hope that they rock. Mm. 
you know, if any, if nothing else, as a Marvel fangirl, this could push Marvel to even greater heights because, frankly, DC are the first to announce uh, a black male lead, solo lead. They're the first to announce mm. a female solo lead. Uh-huh. Um, in but Ezra of course, Miller, coming from their Holy Trinity, Wonder Woman's from their Holy Trinity. It's it's Cyborg easier to certainly announce. Isn't. I know, but it's easier to announce a Wonder Woman movie and get that off the ground. Sure. Even though they've spectacularly failed in the past, then it is to. But on the other hand, Marvel has made a movie with a talking raccoon who is not any of their holy trinity. They've made a movie with starring. Ant-Man. Yeah, but that's a Guardians of the Galaxy. Is a different I know. Thing. It's not. They haven't announced a Star Lord movie or a Gamora movie. They it's, have, however, announced Ant Man and Doctor Strange. Neither of whom are that major. Well, I'm just saying. There we we beg to differ. Certainly with Doctor Strange, but uh, you know, for example, you know, we we know they're trying to make. They're looking at Black Widow. They're they're looking at Miss Marvel. But I would rather they announced when they're ready and when they're ready to go and when it's right than jump the gun and make a bad movie. Sure, but nobody's saying that DC are necessarily... Well, I'm not saying that DC are necessarily jumping the gun with these two. These Mm. two may be characters that DC rightfully have a lot of confidence in. True, but at the moment, all all DC have done is beat Marvel to an announcement. Sure. You never know. But But Marvel has been around for a long time and hasn't even announced it. So, listen, uh, let's give some credit where it's due, No, absolutely, but I'm just saying that it's, it's maybe a little... Also, they've they've done Jessica Jones. We've got Luke Cage coming on on, on TV, Netflix. Sure. I think we have to wait until we've seen Batman v Superman. We can probably wait until before. Justice. I was about to say we could wait before or after the colon. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> but uh, I think that film's going to be the the test of this, isn't it? You know, yeah. you're going to come out of that, and I think at that point you'll know whether or not you want to see any of these films. Yeah, so n- no true. pressure at all for that one. But seriously, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and yeah. the, the footage they showed at Comic Con, even though it's only thirty seconds long whipped the room into a frenzy and it looked fantastic given that I was standing in the queue outside I couldn't really comment did you hear the screams though? yeah you probably heard the screams so yeah <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see what happens but you know, there is an element I just feel that you know get the movie out there see what people are excited about and then do your and make your spin-off announcements uh, but it's interesting there's a lot of interesting casting stuff you're talking about Ezra Miller who's a wonderful brilliant mm. uh, young actor terrifying obviously and we need to talk about Kevin and really charming and funny in the perks of being a wallflower. Uh, but for me, that guy's the Joker. Not he's a Joker <laughs> and waiting. It's just he's right there under your nose. What are you doing? Well, maybe Although, yeah. I mean, maybe he'll be a, he'll be a really an, an interesting Flash just because of that because he's yeah. not the sort of the clean cut model that you know. Frankly, all of these movies seem to have. You yeah. know, he has the gorgeous bone structure to be a leading man, but he's just that little bit off kilter. He's got a little bit of that indie flair, and and that could be. Kind of interesting because I, I mean I just watched the Flash pilot at the weekend for the TV show, and he's adorable. He's but he's a kind of a goofy, mm. you know, slightly goofy version of the usual handsome male lead. I think this uh, I think Ezra could be a slightly smarter, slightly more offbeat version of the same, and that could really mix things up a little bit. And people are saying that you know uh, two flashes is this sign. Once again, there's no real joined up thinking. No. But who's to say that this isn't, for example, Wally West? And yeah. It could be. Barry Allen. It could. I mean, the one on the TV show is Barry Allen. Definitely, it could be that. I guess it just feels a bit strange, Um, and it does feel like they're they're jettisoning. You know, certainly Arrow is already a pretty successful TV show in the states. Mm. It's becoming more and more popular. I think its its reputation has grown from season to season, Um, and obviously the TV Arrow is directly connected. Sorry, the TV Arrow is directly connected to the TV Flash. So it seemed very weird to have a different Flash coexist at exactly the same time. Yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting. Uh, let's see what happens. But in terms of casting, you mentioned Ryan Gosling 
Mm. for Suicide Squad and now he's one of the, the many many people linked for Doctor Strange this yeah. this week I think we've said this before in the podcast but it's going to be very very interesting watching certain actors over the next few years it's like if I take this Marvel movie does that rule me out of DC if I take this DC movie does that mean I can't do <laughs> Iron Man whenever Downey gets too old what does oh what does it mean so it's going to be really intriguing to keep an eye on things like that mm. I would say that Suicide Squad cast list is an interesting one I mean you know dealing in blatant racial stereotyping for a minute bronze tiger is a black man so you would think mm. that maybe will smith is up for that but he's also an expert martial artist and that's not something i necessarily associate with will smith margot robbie as soon as i saw her face i was thinking harley quinn who's rarely a member of the suicide squad but would she's a huge fan favorite and it'd be really interesting to get that sort of giggly psychopath mm-hmm. into that mix um I'm assuming they're looking at Gosling for Deadshot or something, but I'm, I'm not sure. And then Tom Hardy being in the mix, does that mean they want Bane in there? Or would he be a different DC supervillain? Can't imagine to be Bane again. That would be... It would be odd. the Nolanverse into their current yep. universe, which which just would be weird and, and not work. Also, Ezra Miller's far too young to be the Joker to the Ben Affleck's Batman, I've just realised as well, which is a bit of a shame... Grow older faster, honestly, quick, quickly, boy. You've got the power of speed, whatever it is. Right, so uh, that's all very, very cool. Also, I was going to say about all these cast members about Doctor Strange. Mm. It's been playing in my mind for the last couple of weeks. They're all white dudes in their 30s and 40s. Yeah. Where does it say that Doctor Strange has to be a white guy? It doesn't. Really. Nick Stephen F- Strange, I guess, is actually not really a very uh, <laughs> ethnic-specific name at all, is it? You know, Nick Fury... From the comics, I know yeah. that you know the ultimate. Basically, this Nick Fury is based on the ultimate Nick Fury, but he was white in the comics. Now he's black in the movies. Why not? Why not? Anyway, just a thought. If you're listening, Marvel. Anyway, should we talk about something else? Anything else? Is there anything else? I don't know if there's anything else. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just very quickly, the news that Fantastic Beast is going to be three films mm-hmm. uh, it has now been confirmed. I think it was it was being suggested already. To be honest, I'm not too worried about that because I feel like. J.K. Rowling's writing it. If she didn't think there were three stories there, she probably would say, hang on, guys, I don't think there are three stories and here. And the first one was a fantastic beast, and then the next two is trying to find them. I assume so, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, if anyone can write, you know, periodic adventures, it, it's her. I'm, 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 opt- I'm still optimistic for that one. I think that could be really cool. I'm just, I'm really hyped at how the Wizarding World and the Jazz Age mix. That, to me, could be the most gorgeous thing ever put on screen. So, uh, so fingers crossed for that one. I know, and I know this thing was made at a stockholders call and they just wanted to reassure everybody that they were going to make loads and loads of money over the next few years. (laughs) And this goes some way to assuaging their fears. I don't have enough money. I only have 20 butlers. I need more. Uh, But it is a little cynical, perhaps, and who knows? You know, just, I don't know. I'm caught me old-fashioned. I come from an era where people made one film and didn't announce another 87 <laughs> and then just saw how that one film went and then then decided to make more movies. Maybe they had plans for a trilogy, but they didn't tell you about them. That's until true. Until you did the press junket. They went, well, we always thought it was a trilogy. But that's, I would just like to get back to that in a little bit. Just a little oh, bit. Oh, you're idealist. You? I know. I know. Right, before Robert Downey Jr. comes in and kicks me. Uh, Christian Bell, back in talks for Steve Jobs' biopic. Danny Boyle, still aboard to direct. Is this a superhero film? I don't know. Is it? It's not. It's not a superhero film. Steve Jobs is not a superhero, although he's the closest thing we had. Isn't he, in many ways? Not really. No, not really. Okay. But that's interesting. Christian Bell, the play Steve Jobs. 
Um, Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman herself, is in talks to join Ben Hur along okay. with Pedro Pascal okay. as Pontius Pilate, which is pleasantly alliterative. I saw someone yesterday uh, <laughs> say he could be a nice yes, Pedro Pascal as Pontius Pilate. He could be a, he could be a good Doctor Strange. Really he could down. be a very good Doctor Strange. Down. He could be anything. He's wonderful. <laughs> okay. Hooray for the Viper! <laughs> All right. Okay. That's oh, it. Oh, and. Oh. Neil Patrick Harris is hosting the Oscars. Ah, yes, of course. Neil Patrick Harris is hosting the Oscars. Yes. The people asked, and finally, Oscars has delivered. I'm very oh. excited about the opening number. It's uh, February 22nd, 2015. Clashes with the Miss South Texas senior pageant. I'm sure they were hoping to get him to host, and pretty much got it. Although with the time zones, he could probably do both. He can do anything. <laughs> he can do anything. <laughs> So those cut those movie kittens. Huh? What about oh, those? Oh, are they adorable? With oh, the fluffiness. So good, so good. Okay, time if you're still alive for a second guest. Anna Faris is a bright, sparky, funny, and talented actress, best known for her comedies like the Scary Movie series. Yes, they were comedies, and The House Bunny. And now she's moved on to television with Mom, in which she co-stars with Alison Janney, uh, star of James Dyer's. <laughs> West Wing feature and also the TV show that was associated with um, it's yes. Mom is out now on DVD and Blu-ray and she popped into the office recently to talk to Helen and who else? Just me Just you? Mm. Are you interviewing everybody this week? Pretty much, yeah Okay uh, Has she been seen since? <laughs> she has, yeah I let her go home to uh, Chris Pratt okay. reluctantly But, but just to get closer to him Pretty much Alright, okay uh, Here's the interview Enjoy It's It's cool as well because Christy is like as you say she's a mess but it's it's interesting because a lot of the time in sitcoms especially the woman is the together one the woman is the person yeah. who is you know sensible and the kind of the straight man and then it's the guy is is the disaster i know it's um it, it, i call that the bounce card role where you are just like the eye rolling you know type a girl who has it has it all together and for whatever reason you like this loser of a guy which is bizarre and complicated too but um yeah and and unrewarding i think and does a disservice to you know to to an audience in a sense if you i will say that i i think that there has been a great shift of late in sort of moving a little bit away from sort of that stereotype that type a kind of gal but uh, type A is wrong. That's, I don't mean to say that that's a negative, but the idea, there was always this idea um, when I would be pitching movies and um, to studio executives, it always felt like the maxim was, well, you've got to play a character that girls want to be best friends with and guys want to fall in love with. And that just is a really boring person <laughs> and really hard to do. So, yeah. And, yeah, so it's exciting that Christy is, has a lot of, of struggle. And I'm, as an actor, I just feel like I get to kind of stretch my legs. And I was going to ask about the sort of the current state of comedy because it feels like you've been funny for ages, but you've been funny in films where you've had similar-ish roles just because that feels like there's nothing else out there. Nobody else was doing anything else. And and it feels like we're beginning to open that up a little bit. Maybe it was Bridesmaids. I don't know what the kind of the turning point was. But women are getting to be funny in their own right rather than having to kind of steal scenes a little bit from yeah. other people. You know? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think maybe too, it's sort of the power of the audience. I don't know too much of sort of about the economics of Hollywood, but it does seem like 
the thinking can be one step behind and an idea has to, because the risk is huge. The upfront money is huge to make a, to finance a film. So the Hollywood just feels like one step behind. And it's frustrating that when a movie like Bridesmaids or Ride Along, uh, movies that are, were expected to make a certain amount of money end up being becoming huge hits and everyone seems so surprised. And it's, I think people want to, they want to see talented people, talented, interesting people. And, and I'm so grateful that we have somebody as brilliant as Chuck Lorre because I don't know if, if a less experienced producer could be, I don't know if a studio would necessarily allow a less experienced producer to explore some of the themes that we do. The, the Big Bang Theory and yeah. Two and a Half Men, it's like they, they kind of trust that he knows what he's talking about with comedy, right? Yeah, and it feels so good to be doing something that feels kind of daring, uh, especially for network and especially for our format, a half hour comedy we deal with so many crazy issues. I mean, it felt like every week I would get this new script and look at Allison and be like, I can't believe we are allowed to do this on network television and comedy and <laughs> anal sex jokes. And definitely, I mean, some of the raunchy, the raunchier humor. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I am really surprised sometimes that we get away with that. Uh, my character dates a, a sexy fireman um, in the first season and you know he's uh, getting super stoned with it he's got this huge bong and and that was surprising too but I think it's so much fun to be able to kind of push the envelope in those ways. Was there anything that got cut out that they wouldn't let you do? I think there was a, there was one scene where I was wearing I sort of I hook up with my ex-husband in his van <laughs> and uh, I was wearing underpants and they I think that there was like there's these arbitrary bizarre rules where you can apparently you can see like you're allowed to show like a half an inch of the butt crack but no butt cheek or something so I changed into like boy shorts or whatever but I think um but I think that's I know it's so funny and you can show like the top of the boob but not like the side or the under the boob I don't know it's it's just crazy, but um, but for the most part, we we get away with a lot of a lot of stuff. I have actually so far held off asking about Alison Janney, but as a huge West Wing fan, you know, I've got to ask: Have you had her do the jackal on set at any point? Yes, I have heard people talk about this, and I I overheard one time that she did do it on set, but I missed it. She has um, she's so talented. She's just so amazing and it's really great at her house she's got I mean she's such a modest amazing person but you go over to her house and it's like holy shit she has so many awards and I'm <laughs> so proud of her I'm so honored that she is my co-star and I get to work with her and I truly love her so much because I mean as you, as you know, it's it's tough to work with maybe people that you're not crazy about. But um, she makes my day, and I love it that we're we're two women that get to um, be at the helm of the show, and I love it that we get to set a nice, supportive, kind atmosphere. Um, and uh, so, yeah, no, she's but she does do this thing that I make her do sometimes. And now I'm going to have to make her do the jackal. Um, 
she can laugh. It's hard, it's really hard to do a fake laugh mm-hmm. in general. Um, it's what it's kind of like crying. I I think it's even a little more difficult as technically as an actor, but she can do the most amazing fake laugh and it's so unnerving because it sounds exactly like her real laugh and I'm like Allison you've never laughed you've never truly laughed all the dumb shit I say you she's like no but she has and she she, if you talk to her she has a whole process of how she imagines that she's been hit in the stomach and so the like the initial force of uh, exhaling causes her to start laughing and then she's like able to trick her brain into actually anyway it's a whole thing she's really she's amazing wow oh, we're gonna have to get her to do that next time we're in yeah the yeah Definitely. yeah please do <laughs> who is the funniest person on set then because you've got I mean, a hell of a cast people like french stewart and stuff in there as well who seems to get all some of the best lines the guy who plays my son blake rosenthal is super charming and adorable and like this just the sweetest kid uh, Matt Jones is hysterical French Stewart is amazing um, Nate Cordry is one of my dearest friends um, and Allison and I spend a lot of time giggling um, so we've got a really happy joyful workplace and um, yeah but I'm the funniest person naturally <laughs> sorry I didn't mean to imply otherwise oh god <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask about some of the the great stuff you've done in the past. Um, We have a a huge number of entourage people in the office who immediately uh, were on me to ask about entourage, how you got involved and and how much thought you put into, you know, the Anna Faris character you play in that. That that was a really, um, that, that came about, they offered me, I was a big fan of the show and it just, yeah, they offered me, um, a little arc where I I had these scenes with E and I was going to be playing myself and I remember and I was thrilled I remember getting the scripts though and and I didn't quite know like it didn't feel like a spoof of me like broad enough to be of uh like completely making fun of myself but it also did not feel like me at all so it I had a I was I just remember feeling really confused. Like, is this person a, I don't, I don't know who she is. Why would she be driving naked around the hills again in that car? And they like rented, I think my home on the show is this huge, like $20 million house or something crazy. Um, But I was, I loved uh, being a part of that show and so many it has such a life so many people uh, reference it when you know um they see me and um and i i just love that kevin connelly uh, he's just such a great guy so you're not tempted to go back for the uh, for the entourage movie i would love to go back they haven't asked me yet will you ask <laughs> oh, them to ask, I will me? ask, I will ask <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing that came up in terms of tv work was was obviously friends which i guess shows like a couple of kind of thematic overlaps with with mom in a weird way i played uh the last season of friends i played uh, monica and chandler's uh a adoptive baby mama i guess um and uh not the brightest gal in the world I would, if I were Monica and Chandler, I'd definitely be worried about the intelligence of those babies because apparently I didn't know I was having twins. But you know, it, that was my first experience shooting in front of a live audience. I was 
so excited and honored and terrified to be a part of the show, especially their last season. And uh, I'll never forget, like, just sitting in that coffee shop on that sofa and feeling like, holy shit, I cannot believe it. I can't believe I'm here. And same thing with the bedroom and... And they were all, you know, at, at that point, they're, I mean, they were all incredibly talented. At that point, they were so skilled that, um, you know, they wouldn't really give their full performance until the live taping, which now I really understand. At the time, it left me feeling really confused about uh, if I was overacting or if uh, I, 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 yeah, I just remember feeling like, what is they were also getting pretty sentimental too as a cast because it was coming to an end so they would have sort of like group hugs and group moments and sometimes they would embrace me <laughs> and sometimes I was I would be like I feel like I need I should go I should go because <laughs> I'll just leave you guys yeah to yeah it. yeah <laughs> um but it was amazing and um and just so funny you know every every once in a while I'll get a check for 23 cents Whatever after it's aired in wherever Mumbai, it still seems to be on a loop all the time, right? I know, I know. (laughs) Um, What about your other recent stuff? Because I'm a huge fan of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I think um, Lord and Miller are geniuses, aren't they? You know, that just that just kind of came out of nowhere, and I think blew everybody away. Really, yeah, that was. um, They are just such great guys, too. They're. And Chris just, uh, my husband just did the Lego movie with them. That was great. I love doing that kind of voice work. And there is, uh, there's a, especially with the character that I play, Sam Sparks, Bill Hader and I talk about how it's kind of, you know, like all, like all actors say, it really, it is such a great gig because they can work around your schedule and whatever. And there's no hair and makeup. You, but there, there are challenges to it that surprised me in terms of uh, playing such an enthusiastic character and trying to create um, nuance and um, inflection without sounding to, while still sounding like, you know, potentially like a, a character, but also a very heightened character. And um, we just using your voice, it was, both Bill and I thought we were like, we thought this was supposed to be easy. <laughs> Not but, so easy. <laughs> yeah, and also too, it's um, humbling too because at the at the very end, you're like, this is what you guys have been doing for a year. This is amazing. Um, yeah, and and those guys are just such visionaries. Yeah, you you were in the credits, weren't you, for Twenty Two Jumps? Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah. That was. That that's genuinely sort of credits of the year, if not the decade. Those were incredible. I know they're such. They're just they're they know what they're doing. <laughs> I love those guys so much. Was that kind of a spur of the moment thing where they yeah. kind of called you up and had an idea? Yeah, kind of last minute. Yeah, I think we shot that like a month or two ago. Wow. Um, yeah, they were like, "Well, we have this thing. We're doing this thing for the credits. Will you come be like, um, yeah?" Anyway. It was, but I I love those guys, and it was it was cool to be a part of. And so, if and they want you to, to get you properly in for whatever it was, thirty four Jump Street, you'll oh, you'll I be would there. just die. I would love it so much. 
<laughs> um, no, I have to just sort of finishing up. Where I was, I was on set of Guardians of the Galaxy last summer. Oh, really? Um, so, I mean, were you ever tempted to come over and get painted blue and you know sneak into the background somewhere of that? No, <laughs> no. I, um, but I'm so proud of Chris, and I, I uh, brought my baby. We spent um, some time out here. Yeah, it was just. I mean, the scale of the set was just incredible. I, uh, I wasn't tempted to be painted, but I did. I just was taking it all in. It was amazing. Because you've worked now, obviously, with with Chris in the past. You also worked with Chris Evans, Captain America. I yeah. feel like you should probably have a word with Kevin Feige, get into Marvel somewhere, you know. We need some I feel more like they would heroines. hire me for, like, the spoof. <laughs> That's my Aww. go-to. You're, you're, I hope you're not in the comedy ghetto. <laughs> oh, well, I guess there's worse places to be. <laughs> well, Anna first, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's time for the movie reviews. I love movie reviews. Let's start with uh, The Judge. Sure. Or Iron Man versus Tom Hagen, colon, Dawn of Justice. Yes, The Judge. This is uh, a film with probably the second best tagline of the year. Defend your honour. It's huh. good. It's clever because Robert Downey Jr. plays a shuckster lawyer, a sort of high class uh, defence attorney who's paid massive amounts by his ex- incredibly guilty clients to get them off perfectly legitimate raps. However, he receives a call telling him that his mother has died and he reluctantly turns, returns home to the town he left so long ago and to his authoritarian father, the judge of the title, who is played by Robert Duval. He is... Uh, the town judge he has been in place for 42 years you know has, a, has an incredible reputation in the time which he is keen to defend but that all comes under risk when he is accused of murdering uh, a man who he wants who once appeared before him in court rather reluctantly Robert Downey Jr's character has to essentially step up to the plate and defend his own father against this charge hampered by the fact that his father of course refuses to do anything that even smacks of dishonor in any way or or you know any kind of uh, gameplay he he just wants to kind of be tried fairly and uh, he really kind of ties his his son's hands together basically in his attempts to provide a defense so in the course of all this you learn a lot about their past relationship you learn a lot about the family that they come from you learn a little bit about the crime uh, that he's accused of and it's all Right, there are great moments. There are great moments between the two of them. Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Duvall, I think, are are brilliant together and and are able to give these scenes real weight and real kind of, you know, heart and emotion as well. The problem for me was that there's a heck of a lot going on in this film. This is Mm. two hours, 27 minutes, I think, in total, which is insanely long. And there are subplots that are set up and never pay off. There are characters that seem to be going one way the entire film and then go another. There are other characters who are kind of just dropped with no kind of comeback halfway through. And it just feels like a heck of a lot of stuff was thrown together and not really planned out to me. I mean, I don't know if you agree, Chris. I know you've seen this as well, but it's a sort of it, it's it's too much of a muchness. There, there's all mm. of this stuff going on. I mean, Vincent D'Onofrio's character um, turns out he is another complicated backstory with with Robert Downey Jr.'s Hank, but, but that doesn't get any sort of payoff really for him yeah. in the end. No, there's a, there's a great 100 minute movie, I think, lurking within yeah. the 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 fattened bones of this one. Uh, it's a real shame in a way, and 
not to be too cynical about the origins of the film, but you can tell that it's been set up as Oscar bait. And it's sad in a way when you see a movie that's so clearly set up as a prestige movie just kind of miss the mark mm. a little bit. It's still entertaining. It's still great whenever Danny and Defile are, are on screen together and they're sparring. And I love a nice courtroom thriller. I, I, I like all that stuff. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. But it, it really does collapse under the weight of too many characters, too many mm. superfluous subplots. And uh, just a sense of worthiness, I think, that certain films, films like this, feel they need to have in order to be seen as serious movies, to be part of the Oscar race, mm. uh, which it won't be. No. It's it's probably an attempt to get into the best actor ca- conversation for, for Downey. Sadly, for him, it's not going to happen because the movie didn't do that well and yeah. hasn't been received he that is, well. He is good in it. But He's it's, good in it, yeah, yeah, but it's just, it's it's... It's a fine film. We gave it three stars, which, as we all know, is a, is a recommendation. And it's fine. Uh, but it's also probably the sort of movie that's best watched on an airplane. Yeah, it wouldn't actually suffer too much from that, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just a disappointment. I, I, I think it had the material in it to be so mm. much more. Again, great, great cast. We haven't even mentioned um, Vera Farmiga as as Robert Downey Jr.'s sort of high school girlfriend who he left behind. Mm. There's a really good cast across the board and it just doesn't really go anywhere. So, yeah, the disappointing three stars. But, but not bad. No. Three stars. No. <laughs> no, no. Not a bad three stars at all. Our next film is a tasteful and compelling tale of four Renaissance painters, Raphael, Donatello, Leonardo and Michelangelo and how they came together to defy authority in, oh, no way, it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The new one, directed by Jonathan Liebesman, who directed Battle Los Angeles and Wrath of the Titans. You know it's going to be good. And also produced by Michael Bay, which is just the extra seal of quality you just need to push this thing over the top. Uh, Still, open minds and everything. Every day is Christmas Eve. What's this one like, Helen? Yeah, so this is the motion-captured sort of CG Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Megan Fox plays April O'Neil, the reporter who who wants to bring us hard-hitting, important news mm. from the crime-ridden city. Is she motion-captured in CG? <laughs> I don't know. It, she could be. It would explain a lot, I feel. But instead, uh, one night, she finds herself with some giant reptile crime fighters, as you do, as you do. and and obviously has to uh, make what she can of these and, and try and convince other people that they are, in fact, real things that are happening. And, and frankly, it's something that, you know, the audience has a little bit of trouble being convinced by mm-hmm. as well. The turtles here look positively steroidal. They're, they're really quite big and bulky. They don't look like any turtles I've ever seen. No. I mean, in fairness, neither did the originals, if we're completely honest, apart from the fact that they had shells. But but the, something about the faces this time is, is really quite disturbing. Yeah. Um, good CG, though. It is good I CG, think, yeah. yes. Yeah. Fairly convincing. The, I think the the actual mechanics involved in the mocap are are uh, we've we've heard a lot of the directors talking about how how advanced it was. That's all fine. I think it's more the design that is a bit upsetting. The plot is just barely is frankly anything. And you've got this sort of you know scientific genius holding the city to ransom. But I mean, right? Ollie picked out a line in the review which I just have to repeat here for you. Mm-hmm. This scientific genius mm-hmm. says. Drain all their blood, even if it kills them. <laughs> I want you to think for a moment about what the alternatives to killing them might be in in those in that scenario. Um, but yeah, it's just it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work, and and it's really quite scary. If you wanted to take kids to these to see these turtles, I think mm. the turtles themselves would scare them. Never mind the bad guys. So we didn't love it. We gave it two stars. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Two stars for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which of course was a huge hit in the States, making it's close to 200 million in the US. Uh, but we have a hunch, if you're listening to the Empire Podcast, this movie may not be for you. But hey, you know, you never know. Go and check it out and see what happens. Uh, final film we're going to discuss uh, this week. Well, I'll say we. Helen. <laughs> and uh, and yeah. James Marsden, who's just, who's just been dragged into the <laughs> into the office with duct tape over his mouth. Hello, sir. Poor James Marsden. This is a film set in two different time periods. It's a Nicholas Sparks movie. And genuinely, if you have seen one Nicholas Sparks movie, that can tell that tells you 90% <laughs> of the plot of this one. Um, so you have uh, the two, two young people fall in love. Yes. She is rich and Ooh. her parents are disapproving. He is from the wrong side of the tracks. His name is Dawson. Her name is Amanda. Growing up, they turn into... James Morrison and uh, Michelle Monaghan. Yes. The circumstances have forced them apart. No! Oh, yes, it's true. And uh, they come back together because a mutual friend has ba- named them both in, in his will, leaves them both the contents of his house and the old old lake house where they used to go and spend time <laughs> together. And so they're thrown back together. This is this has moments of of romance. Uh, this has some very good performances, especially from the the two older actors. Quite frankly, uh, Luke Bracey and I have forgotten her name as the young Amanda and Dawson are lovely, but they look about five years younger than Michelle Monaghan and James Marsden because people don't age in Hollywood. So it's a bit bizarre to have them look so completely different. However, um, the, the older actors are very good. The problem is that this is a Nicholas Sparks romance and genuinely every single plot turn is predictable as a result. And genuinely, this has a worse ending than Safe Haven. And if you have seen Safe Haven, <laughs> you will know that that is a damning, damning criticism. So I gave this one two stars because because I cannot sign off on endings like that. It's awful. I cannot sign off. Not, <laughs> not on my watch. Uh, two stars for that one. Also out this week is Gia Coppola's directorial debut. Yes, the latest of the Coppola clan. Palo Alto, which uh, stars two Kilmers. Two Ooh. Kilmers for the price of one. You get Val Kilmer, you get Jack Kilmer, his son. It's great. Awesome. Four stars. Probably worthy of the film of the week. Do go and see it if you can catch it. It is obviously only in key cities. And Northern Soul, which is a coming of age story set against the backdrop of the Northern Soul movement in Lancashire in 1979. Steve Coogan's in that one. And it's three stars. Well worth a look as well. Uh, before we go this week, we have one final guest. As I said, we've got a hat trick. Uh, he's a bony... F- Bonafide legend. He's one of the great American actors, one of the great American character actors, and as we discovered when we went to talk to him, one of the great American characters. He is, of course, Robert Duvall, star of The Godfather, Apocalypse Now, and now this week's The Judge, and he was talking to myself and Helen again? Hey, I'm hardworking. Honestly. And enjoy. Uh, we're delighted. Ireland, huh? Ireland. <laughs> you, know, you know, what happened one time... Uh, uh, John McCormick went backstage and said to Caruso, how's the greatest tenor in the world? And, McCormick, and Caruso said, I don't know, how do you feel? <laughs> right? But you've never been, you've never been to Ireland. Yeah, I have. You have a couple of times, okay. I had a girlfriend that was worked for TWA and she was in between from New York, so I, fall, I went to Limerick or Cork or one of them uh-huh. and, yeah. and then I got a cab for 60 bucks to where she was and we rode horses the next day. Wow, and uh, and then one of our best friends, uh, Maureen Hanley, she has a owns a stable in Virginia where we live, and all her family's from Dublin. So wow. we hear about the, her uncle living in the countryside and yeah. all the stories in Ireland and everything. But though, but she owns a stable that Benny O'Meara, the great writer, Irish American from Brooklyn, mm-hmm. years ago, 
was a self-made horseman. He was a genius. He won Madison Square Garden like six times. Then he bought a P-38 and crashed and killed himself at 29 years old. But she owns that farm that he had his horses at 50 years ago with Kathy Kozner, his girlfriend, who's a friend of mine who's ridden in three Olympics because it's the only sport where women compete equally with men. So, uh, But, you know, that's the Irish connection I have not a lot, but... Uh, so you, you can you can clearly ride yourself as you've uh, as you've shown over the years. Do you get to do much show jumping yourself, or are you just a oh, fan? No, on my at one time my level was much lower than <laughs> like Nick. I met Nick Skelton said you do yeah. your own riding in a movie. I said absolutely, but never on your guys' level. You're the guys that we look to, you know, and they're they're amazing. Well, England has a great team. Yeah. The Irish do good too, but the English okay. great and uh, and the Belgian Belgian they won. Two out of three last world championships where you switch horses, which right. is amazing. Well, we should probably talk about the film before we oh, get yeah. to Oh, yeah. We can talk about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Anything. I mean, I thought the th- this is just a great father-son story, I thought. Because, yes. You know, yourself and, and Hank, played by Robert Downey Jr., it's such... Uh, it, it's one of these relationships where nobody's willing to talk about the relationship. And, and really, for me anyway, it felt like the whole film wasn't building towards a court case. It was building to these two actually having some kind of honest conversation. Yeah, well, it was it was that plus the courtroom. But that, but that was a carryover in the courtroom made made it work because of the father-son thing, yeah. But, uh, no, he's great to work with. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it is a relationship movie, you know, which is the beginning, the beginning and the end of the more interesting things in the world, yeah. you know, artistically. I mean, it was interesting to me that I read one interview where you were saying that you usually do a lot of improvisation. You're, you're kind of loose with the script and yeah. bring things to it, but you really didn't on this one that it was kind well, of... Well, they uh, said he does, but it doesn't. I, I don't know what they mean, like two ways of working. I, I don't know what that means. It's, it, no, it, the, the, my best scene in the movie was cut. Really? Where I talked to my wife's coffin. Yeah. They, they put the end of it. But it was written, but I improvised it a lot. It really, really worked in a ve- on a very emotional level. I, I, are you okay? you're comfortable in there? I talked to her like she was still alive. Wow. But, you know, the movie was long, so they had to cut things down. The, guy that, the two guys that wrote it, the guy that wrote the main part from St. Louis, very smart script, one of the most mm-hmm. I ever read. He came on the set, never been in the movie, never, and he just stood there. Uh, what's it like to be in The Godfather? Oh, tell me about Lonesome Dove. He wanted to know about movies. So he was doing what we were about. Yeah, to like, but he was like, oh, I'm on a movie set. But he wrote this terrific script, and you, did, you didn't really need to improvise much. Hmm. But if called for, I like to improvise. But, you know, if, if it's a good script, you don't necessarily need to. Yeah. It's interesting you say there that that was your best take your best scene well do you know one of, yeah it was one that i said why did you they left the end in by yeah. the end i was very emotional which worked mm-hmm. billy bob thornton says i love working with billy bob i call him the hillbilly orson wells <laughs> so he says rehearsals for pussies only two takes so, <laughs> and actually the re- the first take is a rehearsal really i mean you you have worked with billy bob several times before were you instrumental in getting him on board uh, this one or, or was that just it could be i don't know if it was or not i mean maybe i don't know he uh, he always said he says I, I was his mentor i was half his mentor nobody mentors billy bob he's he's so he's terrific he's a true southern voice like they have a true irish voice he's a true southern voice it's it's, it's interesting about billy bob because uh his, uh, he comes from a very liberal background, but he's, all these uncles were Masons, Protestants. His mother was a clairvoyant. She took his 
readings because they wanted to have a lot of money. And his, his, his mother's favorite ex-wife of his was the black woman he was married to. And, but these are Southerners. So that he, but yet Billy can sit down with a liberal or with a redneck and he's comfortable. Interesting guy. I tell his six-year-old daughter, tell your daddy don't put any more tattoos on his body. Got them all over. <laughs> it's interesting because years ago, because I, after I had played Stalin, I, I knew Nikita Mikhailkov, whose father had worked eight times under Stalin. Uh-huh. Very interesting. So when he came to the country uh, years ago, I said, well, you know, hold on, I'll meet you at the hotel. I called up Billy Bob and said, now, here's Malvern, Arkansas, meeting Moscow. The two big talents meet. <laughs> and we talked for like two hours. It was terrific. Billy Bob, he's great. Amazing. Well, you're a bit between two worlds as well, because you were born in California, but you know, yeah. you, you, with, with southern roots. and you've Yeah, well, semi. So my father was from Virginia, the beginning of the South, yeah, where they talked a little like out in the house almost like parts of England, but softer, you know, like Canadians. So, but, uh, you know, so it's interesting, because when I played Robert E. Lee, the great Southern general, all I did was talk like my father, because my father was from Northern Virginia, where Lee was from, and they were both military men. So it was an easy thing to do to play Lee, you know, which was a great figure, you know, at one time. It's extraordinary. You You just mentioned there you played Stalin, Robert E. Lee. Who's, who's left? Which big names? I play Eisenhower. <laughs> Eisenhower. Eichmann. <laughs> I went to Argentina to play Eichmann, and they, they took him to Israel to be executed, and, and I got my present wife. This Eichmann did better. <laughs> Much younger than I am, my, fa- my father-in-law said, I don't know whether to call you father or son, he said. <laughs> and then Wilfred Brimley, the old cowboy actor, said, yeah. well, a young woman, he said, let me tell you something, my friend. The worst thing in the world for an old man is an old woman. <laughs> so, you know, that, 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 whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Was that, is that all down to the tangoing, the, the younger wife? Well, I was down there working. You know, I, 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 yeah, I like the tango. I like, I like the music. And, and uh, it's, it's gone all over the world, uh, the, the, the tango. And uh, it's, a, it's a social dance. I took her to the first one. Like, she had never been. She's oh, really? from northern Argentina. But she kind of took to it. And uh, it's, it's an interesting world, uh, Made made a number of films, both as writer and director. A few, not a lot. A few, yeah. Are you planning to do any more? No, I just did one. Just finished one. It's interesting because they they backed us up on this film for the Toronto Film Festival to open it. I said I can't be there, guys. I'm directing my own film in Utah, so they picked up the bill for the last day with the third Warner Brothers, which was great of them. I appreciate it, Sue Kroll and all of them, and. uh, yeah, I, we did a movie in Utah, which, uh, which is to, to, for Texas, because mm. the rebates are better, and uh, and we we found topography that looked a lot like Texas, yeah. mm. with the Texas Rangers. My wife was in it; she played a Texas Ranger. Cool. Yeah, and we we work with the Mormons, the great the Mormons. I call them the Jews of the Anglo-Saxon people, the the Mormons. They're so smart. Yeah. They're so smart. I've been to Utah, and some of the, the scenery there is incredible, so it must have been... What, pretty. Utah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we, we couldn't use the big mountains, right. the big, the Wasatch. We used the smaller ones in Skull Valley, which looks a lot like Alpine, Texas. And then we did a scene on the river, and we had a, a real Texas rangers, and they called their ranger friends in Texas. What part of Texas is this? They said, well, Rio Grande Valley? He said, no, it's Salt Lake City. So, <laughs> so we, you know, we, we found good locations, really. Yeah, called Wild Horses, a 
It's easy to raise a hundred million in two. <laughs> we had we had well, we had a but we had a good people. We had James Franco, Josh Hartnett, and we had some really good people to be in it. Small film, small, a lot smaller than this. Yeah. So you're not you're not slowing down necessarily. Why? You're not slowing down anytime soon. No no thoughts of retirement in your head. For Maybe, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. I'm yeah. trying to. It's, things keep popping up. You yeah. know, it's some things you plan. Something around the corner surprises you. It's better than the things you plan sometimes. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting in you know, the likes of, you know, Sean Connery's no longer acting. Which now? Sean Connery's no longer acting. Gene Hackman is no longer acting. Sean Connery's no, no longer acting. Yeah. Really? So, yeah. It's, it's interesting what keeps Ooh. some actors going. What 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 motivates you? I don't you to know. Keep they going? keep certain parts come come along. You know. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's I got a few left. I'm working on a thing. Uh, I like westerns, and it's, uh, there's a guy. Uh, Elmer Kelton, something I'd never heard of him in a lot of Texas. He's voted the best Texas writer of all time over McMurtry and all of them. Oh. So I have the rights to the day the Cowboys quit. A true story of some Cowboys that went on strike against the big ranchers right. who wouldn't let them own their small band of horses or cattle, which usually was afforded them. Yeah. But, yeah. So uh, I'm working on that and hopefully find a writer. I've got to get a writer. I, 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 I have the option on that. So I'd like to, to do that. To direct, maybe? No. Maybe to be in, but not to direct, though. Okay. To find, you know, to find a good young, there are a lot of good young actors, so uh -huh. to find somebody that's good with a horse, you know. Are you uh, are you going to direct again, or are you done with directing? Well, this one I just did, yeah. directed, a while, oh, the one Wild Horses. Yeah. We're editing it now, and uh, I don't know if I'll direct, you know, we'll see. But this was a, only I had 23 days to do it, so we oh, had to rush. That was it. But we got it. You know, it was a lot of uh, crazy things going on, but, but it worked out pretty well, I think. Put music to it coming up, you know. But sometimes mm. I think there's too much music in movies, always. So you see certain wonderful Iranian films, they hardly have any music. I think certain movies need a little bit, but not source music. But, yeah, they, they pump music in so much sometimes. Too much, I think. I mean, you mentioned Iranian films. I mean, what do you what do you watch in your spare time? You're, you're obviously watching world cinema in your spare time. What not so much. Not you, so much. I, 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 each year they send me the DVDs. I try to catch up, and uh, you know, I don't see that many. I, li I like to in the theater. The sound is bad. I can't, yeah. so I like to I watch them at home. Yeah. A bit of everything. Do you have a? I mean, apart from westerns, do you have a favorite genre that you mostly watch? Just, just good stories. Story, it's storytelling, really. Filmmaking, I think. Mm -hmm. Storytelling, yeah, and good, good. Look, I look for behavior. Yeah. And uh, pure behavior in actors, you know. And I think overall, the acting's gotten better through the years. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. You think well, maybe it was a bit mannered before, or a bit pardon? Maybe a bit mannered before, or what? Was Absolutely. Yeah. When you see, and Billy Bob agrees with me. Everybody, nobody agrees with us. I do not look. <laughs> I do not think The Searchers is such a great film. Interesting. There's some pretty bad acting in that. Yes. Yeah, not Sean Wayne. He was okay, yeah. but that young kid was horrible. And it's up to the director to find a way to make that more pure, to bring it down. Mm. But in that day and age, I work, I work with one of those directors. They were very much, this guy said to an actor, when I say action, tense up, God damn it. You know, you imagine saying that to Georgie Best in the middle of a match. Hey, tense <laughs> up, you 
you know, you know, it's different from intensity, you know. Yeah, yeah. And some of those guys were like that then, the directors. You know, I mean, I work with one. If you look like that, he cut. What are you looking at? It had to be like a proscenium, you know. Wow. Yeah. So I think there's still lousy movies made now. But I think the best of... Uh, 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 an example, the, mo the movie Moneyball uh -huh. with Brad Pitt and the director, uh, Bennett Miller. Yeah. If that movie had been done 40 years before, it'd be inundated with caricature performance. It was a wonderful movie. Yeah. Mixed the non-actors. It was very, very good performances. So I think movies have, overall have gotten better, I think. I mean, so you mentioned uh, The Searchers and, and you were talking about the young actor there. I wanted to ask about your debut because I'm a huge fan of To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. I just think it's it's one of the great films of all Thank time. Thank you. Yes. Um, and another great courtroom drama. Yeah, very well. much so. I mean, well, well uh, you know, when I was coming up, I had a career, but Horton Foote, the great Texas playwright, and Coppola, I did parts that really helped my career. And and Horton, I had done a play at the Neighborhood Playhouse that he saw, with his, and I knew him a little bit. And he's well, that's when I met him with his wife and Kim Stanley. And the man Mulligan, who eventually directed *To Kill a Mockingbird*. So two or three years later, when they were casting it, Horton Foote's wife Lillian Foote said, "Well, what about that young boy we saw in the play at the Neighborhood Playhouse? He might be good for Boo Radley." Wow. So that was kind of you know. And Horton Foote helped me a lot with my. He was a great writer that a lot of people really don't know. He's a wonderful writer, one of our greats, but you know, unsung in a way. Mm -hmm. And it was because of him that I got that part. Wow. And it was only she only wrote one book. Yeah. Well, uh, Harper Lee. Harper Lee. And when I, w I had an apartment, 83rd and West End. I was living with my brother and some other people in, in New York. And when I went, there was a telegram from her. Hey there, boo, from Harper Lee. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I went off to do the, the movie, you know. And, uh, and we did it in Hollywood because they didn't go on location as much in those days. Yeah. Did it on the back lot of Universal, you know. It was nice. And Horton was there. And Gregory Peck was such a gentleman, you know. It was really, it was really a nice experience. Wow. Yeah. You're happy? <laughs> you really got happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned George Best. And before we started, we were talking about Ali McCoist, how you directed Ali McCoist, because yeah. you're a huge football fan. Uh, well, I'm I, gonna, you I'm, mean European football? Yeah, European I football. I like it. My wife's from Argentina, and I like... Uh, I was disappointed that Messi didn't do better with... But the, but once again, the German team was so good. Mm, they were good. I know. I, I, I've liked, you know, mainly watching, not not on a daily basis, but, you know, the World Cup every four years. And mm. I've, I've watched everyone for, since Pelé was playing, really. Wow. And uh, the, one of my favorite players, but he got hurt. He, I couldn't get over what a good athlete Michael Owen was. Awesome. What an athlete. Yeah. But he got hurt the next the next one yeah now he's raising horses I now he's raising horses he's good doing right him. good but it's, it's interesting because i we, we i've spoken to you before about michael owen so i know your admiration yeah, for we, him yeah um, we where, where was that we talked to? i think well the last time we spoke was on jack reacher but right, right, uh, two years over ago, here right. for, yeah. yeah in london we saw manchester city play manchester united that's right yes, that was a great went. well how yeah. many people see that like a hundred million people see it uh, a lot of people yeah that one yeah. match and one match yeah wow it's pretty amazing yeah. but uh but Michael Owen uh, has recently said that he doesn't like films. He's only seen eight films in his life. Why is that necessary? Uh, he doesn't like fiction. <laughs> he doesn't. He thinks he thinks films are boring. But well, if you be. were if you were to recommend one of your films 
for Michael Owen to watch that would convert him to cinema? I'm not, I'm not even, I won't even go near that. <laughs> <laughs> we sit down with a Robert DeFal box set. No? He likes horses, why not uh, Lonesome Dove, but that's, that's too long. Well, you know, they, what does he like, documentaries? Yeah, well, who knows? I mean, I, I, that's fine. I like to watch for behavior. Brando used to watch Candid Camera <laughs> for <laughs> behavior, to learn, yeah. Really? Yeah. To learn what? That's what why was he was so talented. Yeah, well, for the real thing. Yeah, people's reactions. To try to make it more real, you know. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I, I, you know my wife now, she's from Argentina. She, she's terrific in my movie, but uh, she doesn't watch a lot of movies. But uh-huh. that's somebody's prerogative if they don't want to watch them. Yeah. You know. But, uh, you know... I mean, the, the, he's into horses now. The movie, I think, the movie Secretary wasn't that good. I don't think. <laughs> but you can tell Michael O was the greatest racehorse in the history of history. Yeah, comes from Virginia, Secretariat. Watch the film. He's from Virginia, not yeah. Kentucky. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he won the. He won the. the I don't want some the triple crown. The, the, right, the yeah. one, yeah. thirty-one lengths. Wow. Each, each quarter mile was faster than the other. And when the horse died, he had a heart twice as big as other horses. Really? Yeah. Wow. He was a Virginia horse. Built like a quarter horse. Big in the rear. Yeah. You know, like a quarter horse. I saw that movie. That was a great movie. Was, yeah. It was a great story. Maybe not a great movie. But. Yeah, yeah. And Seabiscuit was okay. It's okay. Didn't she write something else that was very interesting? The one with the little Seabiscuit? Yeah, Did she write a book on Teddy Roosevelt? No. Was that the same woman? No. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sometimes movies on animals. The horse whisperer I never saw. Here was so so. A friend of mine was a, was a, one of the wranglers on that. He gets the horses for a lot of movies. Yeah. Uh, Rex Peterson. Yeah. Well, has to get the performance out of the horse. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I remember I, years ago, I went to Old Hampshire, not New Hampshire, Old Hampshire right. over here. We went out. This, uh, I think my wife rode a. A horse that was half Connemara and half thoroughbred. You could go to a nice wrench string and get a pretty good horse, you know, bomb-proof, and ride <laughs> in the countryside, you know. But uh, they're not—they're not machines. They'll no. hurt you, Absolutely. and they don't love you like a dog. Oh, really? No, a yeah. horse, no. So there's there's no bonding, or is is there bonding to there's the a bonding? Yeah, yeah, but it's different from a dog, you know. Yeah. They don't you know, a dog has a sense of guilt you feel, but a horse doesn't, you know, throw you off that set, you know. It might stand there, oh, really? but I've had a few accidents, you know. Well, Nick Skelton said he broke his neck and came back and then won the World Cup after that. Most people retire when they have those kind of injuries, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. I'd be That's with amazing. the retiring crowd, I think, if I broke my yeah. neck doing yeah. anything. My God. I think I'd be with the uh, never doing anything again for the rest <laughs> of my life crowd. Uh, Robert, it's been a pleasure. We have to wrap up. I could talk to you for oh. hours, but uh, nice thank talking you so you. much. Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by David Ayer, director of Fury, and Steve Carell. So we're following Jack Lime with Brick Tanland. We don't just throw this stuff together, you know. Yeah, we do. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Totally. Who's off on holiday now? I am, yes. Mm-hmm. Where are you going? I'm going to Maine. Amazing. To reenact which Stephen King film? Hopefully none of them. <laughs> but, you know, I'll let you know how it goes. We are going to a big hotel that's a bit like The Shining, so fingers crossed. All awesome. work and no play. Awesome. Jimbo, you go on holiday? I don't do holidays. I wish you did. It's <laughs> uh, so, goodbye from Jimbo as well. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me as well. I'm off to schedule 14 Nicholas Sparks movies over the next 
three years. It's the Sparksy first. It's going to be amazing. Everything's going to link in together. Everybody's going to die horribly. Yeah, I haven't thought this through. See you next week.